Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. This is the morning after the primetime live hearing from the January 6th committee. And we have assembled an all-star cast to discuss this. Normally, it's just Tim Miller and me, but Tim and I will be joined by Bill Crystal and by Sarah Longwell to break down everything that was going on because, I mean, our plate is full. So anyway, thank you all for joining me today. Hey, Charlie. Hey, there. hey Charlie. All right, so let's let's start off. I'm just going to throw this out there. Um, what did you think of the hearing? Do you think that it was effective? Uh, we'll start with you, Sarah. What was your take on on last night? Yeah, I would say it exceeded my expectations. And I have pretty high expectations of Liz Cheney. You know, I've been doing a lot of media going into the hearings. And the one thing I keep pounding away at is how this will be sort of different from the two impeachments was that Liz, they will have Liz Cheney this time. But even she exceeded my expectations because she is so understated and yet searing in her indictment, right? You know, I mean, there's a lot of people who want to kind of set this up as a circus, as a as a partisan witch hunt. And she literally stops that critique in its tracks with the way that she, both her tone, the crispness and clarity with which she lays out the case. And anytime anyone else is talking, I want them to stop because I only want her to talk. Okay. Bill, you made the point in the bulwark today that we we can't possibly know whether this is going to move public opinion, but maybe that's not the measure of what, what happened last night. I mean, I hope it does. And yeah. it's important if it does. Obviously, I just think we don't know it less than 24 hours later. We all have a uh, people over decades have a record of being bad at predicting what has an effect and what doesn't have an effect and what has an effect on the first day isn't what has an effect isn't necessarily what has an effect a month later. We're going to have, I thought one very important thing was the way which Liz Cheney and what was altogether extremely impressive presentation and really one that you should make us treasure in a way some aspects of our political system and members of Congress and leaders. We, we tend to, we tend to correctly despair in some ways about the people we have in elective office and the, and the way in which our institutions function. But that committee hearing yesterday, I'll just say one word about that, was was really an example of our democratic government working. Congress oversight, congressional oversight over something terrible that happened. Unfortunately, one of our two major parties basically didn't cooperate, but thank, thankfully uh, two members of that party did. And the hearing went in an orderly and dignified way. And I think this whole set of hearings, that was what struck me, is that the way Liz Cheney laid it out will we'll end up cumulatively being more than I would have expected, I guess. I've been talking to people, some people on the, you know, near the committee and so forth and sort of had a sense of what they were trying to do. But I think the way in which she kept saying, you will, in hearing number three, you will see that and you will under, you will hear from people, uh, uh, you will see contemporaneous documents and you will hear from people's sworn testimony. I think she really laid the predicate for the fact that these are the facts. These are the facts. And no one is challenged. I, I haven't looked at every single person writing about it, but I believe is there a single challenge anywhere to any factual statement that Liz Cheney made last night? By the way, I think that's an interesting uh, tell because I, I am looking for you know what the what the blowback from conservatism Inc. is, and we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, there appears to be you know little effort to refute any of the arguments or the facts. Uh, you know their playbook seems to be you know number one delegitimize the committee, and number two change the subject, distract, talk about Black Lives Matter uh, being worse or or inflation which is savvy politically, maybe, but it's also an indication that sometimes there are, you know, things that you, you just simply can't defend. So I want to get your take in a minute, Tim. I actually also had this take that I had pretty high expectations when I, 
And also, I don't like watching things like this on a normal basis. I was riveted by it, and, and I was impressed. I was impressed by their willingness to go there when it comes to playing the sound bites of Donald Trump, the juxtaposition of all of it. It was a very methodical case, very unemotional, but had a real kick to it. So, Tim, I wanted to bounce this off you. So yeah. the media critics over at CNN were underwhelmed by this. So Oliver Darcy wrote, we all heard this was going to be a made-for-TV hearing, a presentation designed to capture the attention of the public in a way that normal Capitol Hill events simply do not do. And they hired the, the TV expert. New York Times, uh, you know, teased uh, that they uh, had hired uh, Goldston to produce the hearings as if they were a docudrama or a must-watch miniseries. But in reality, Darcy writes, the hearing did not feel like a docudrama or must-see miniseries, not even close. Instead, it mostly employed the style of a standard run-of-the-mill Capitol Hill hearing. Yes, there was a haunting video package, but the video, the only real detour from the typical hearing format, only comprised a sliver of the two-hour affair. So bottom line for them was the hearing was not the shock and awe that it needed to be. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, I don't, you know, I think the theater criticism on this is kind of silly, but I, I understand where it comes from. Uh, so I'll, I'll just say really brief, briefly on, on if I could be a theater critic for a second. Yeah. I love the critic. Um, I thought it was pretty good. I, I thought Benny Thompson was long at the beginning, and the beginning yeah. matters. And, and so I think there was a little frustration with that. Um, I I thought that just splicing in these clips of like Jared Kushner, who, who like did, clearly didn't know that that he was that that was going to be a video that was used <laughs> or didn't think it was going to be. I thought that was pretty spicy uh, and different from a normal congressional hearing. Uh, but but here's I think what is really underlying that criticism is that because this is not a hearing where like the result of this is going to be people in handcuffs, right? And and because. Uh, you know that then the the question politically becomes okay. Well, what is the point of this this hearing? And then the punditry immediately goes, immediately goes to well, are we going to are we going to change people's minds? To Bill's point, like are we going to change the public's mind? And and that is also kind of not the point of this of, of this hearing. And and I think that everybody has in our, in our brains this little you know person that's saying to us, well. Is this really going to change the mind of the people who are the cool kid, you know, the cool conservative crowds who are too cool to care about anything on Twitter? Is this really going to change my uncle's mind in the MAGA hat? Is this really going to change any voters' minds who like aren't paying attention? Like probably not, right? Uh, maybe I, I, you know, I don't know, but probably not. But that I think is misdiagnosis why they did this and why we had to do this because even if Steven Spielberg had come in and produced this and produced the best, you know, police procedural or we, we had your English yeah. proce police procedural. <laughs> come in and, and produce the most dramatic thing that still wasn't gonna convince my MAGA uncle you know like that the, so so well, he wasn't gonna be so, watching anyway right, right he wasn't gonna be watching anyway um and so I, the point of this is really for the accountability for for the government to bill's point to actually look at what happened and and present a, a fully formed factual results and, and kind of let the chips fall where they may and i and i think that there's a certain type of person for whom that is not satisfactory because they want more because they think that this was so bad and they want everyone else to realize how bad this was. And I think that impulse is really where this kind of criticism of the presentation comes from. Well, I, I generally dis disagree pretty strongly with uh, with Darcy's take, and I usually agree with him because I actually did think that it was compelling. I thought it was powerful. But I want to ask you about this, Sarah. I, you know, maybe it's hard for us particularly to evaluate this because we're too close to it. 
we've read about it. We've talked about it. We've, we've lived this whole story for the last year and a half. So I would really be interested to hear what about somebody who's just been sort of casually watching it, not paying attention to all of it? What was their takeaway? Uh, you know, Sarah, I mean, what do you think? I mean, I'm, you know what I'm thinking? I'm, I'm thinking of kind of, you know, one of your people from the focus group who may sort of have a reasonably knowledgeable, otherwise they wouldn't have taken up, you know, the time to, to watch it. Did it strike them as fresh? Did it strike them as revelatory? Uh, what, what do you think? I mean, you, you wrote in my newsletter this morning that, you know, one of the main takeaways was also that it just kind of rekindled. If, if you had been watching this or following, it rekindled your rage at what happened and the Republicans. So what, what, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, look, there is a reason that the the cool kids on Twitter, as as Tim calls them, are trying to do this kind of nothing to see here. Nobody cares about this because they want that to be true. And look, as a matter of objective analysis, I have been quoted in many places over the last couple of weeks talking about the focus groups and saying, look, January 6th has receded in people's minds and it is a yeah. low salience issue for voters. And if you tell people, are you going to vote on January 6th? Or are you going to vote over how you feel about inflation and gas prices and grocery prices? Obviously it is the latter, but none of these Republicans or sort of conservative ink types want to see this become a high salience issue. And while I think it is difficult to make it stick as a high salience issue, what these hearings do is they do elevate it in people's minds. And it reminds everyone, including the people who have spent the last 18 months trying to studiously look away at literally anything else so that they don't have to feel the shame of their cowardice and their choices that both allowed Donald Trump to be president, that allowed him to um, continue to dominate the Republican Party. Like, I believe that people feel shame in the pits of their stomach over what happened on January 6th and whatever role they played in blocking and tackling for Trump in all those years, the rich Lowry's, the baseball cranks, uh, the whole crowd at the Washington Examiner. And so the January 6th, to the extent that it refreshes my rage at what Republicans and conservatives will tolerate, because everything that you see happening on the screen is something that has been tolerated by Republicans, 147 of them, after all of that, still came back and refused to certify the election. And this is one of the things that's important that they're prosecuting in this case, which is that everybody knew that Donald Trump was lying about the election being stolen, and yet they all went along with it. And so I think that it, for me, it re-elevates the rage of what these people will tolerate. And I think for a lot of the people who really want to talk about anything else, uh, you know, they, they want to keep that shame at bay by kind of the distraction game. I think you're, you're actually right because, you know, as I was watching, I was thinking, how can you see this or think about this and think that this was not a major event? This was not a trivial event. This was not one among other things. And some of the stuff is familiar, but you know, there's that, that phrase, you know, it's, it's new to me. Um, if you hadn't seen it before, it was new and not to, you know, and also at some point you need to remind people of, of all of that. And so I, yeah, the cool kids on, on Twitter, you know, you know, Rich Lowry, the editor of National Review, saying, well, you know, reactions are predictable to people that you would expect to be outraged or outraged about it. And well, you know, that that's that's sort of like I, I just I just don't want to deal with this. There is something sort of morally stunted about that. <laughs> yeah, well, boy, morally stunted is a kind way mm -hmm. to phrase that. Mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to say one thing about the regular people question. I, and this is going to feel outdated, particularly to, you know, my not my party Snapchat crowd. But 
like being across all the networks is a different animal as far as just numbers of people that you're reaching with this type of thing. And obviously the clips are going to go around on social media and all that, but, but, you know, on, on an average, you know, primetime night, uh, you know, you're, you're on network TV, uh, you know, it's over 10 million people that are watching yeah, that, who, which who is orders of magnitude people? greater than cable. And so there is, you know, sometimes when we think about your regular person, right, you're thinking about the MAGA hat person or the resistance person. And, and there are, uh, you know, a lot of gradients out there for people that, that this does not define their lives, right? And that I, so I do think that there were at least some new eyeballs last night and 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 that will continue as as far as the you know moral what was our phrase for for rich lowry look not these just, guys yeah the whole point of this is these guys don't have anything to rebut they don't have anything to rebut i mean the the wor- andy mccarthy over at national review the worst example of this was he literally sends in the same tweet that during the impeachment i said that they needed to do a more thorough job of investigating like the and and save the impeachment vote for after that was finished Okay, so that was the first part of the tweet. So, but they rushed that so that it couldn't have been good. Now we've seen the results of all this, and it doesn't seem like there's anything new. So I don't see what the point of this is either. And, and yeah. it's like, well, and this is just this is just the definition of motivated reasoning. I mean, you and it was obvious that he should have been convicted at the start. That we didn't need a big investigation. All, all the evidence was public, and now that we've learned everything, there is actually new information that we've learned from this select committee. So uh, you know, it's just they're just grasping for anything to minimize it because th- just the facts are so ugly. Yeah, Bill. Yeah, I'm not so sure. I, I mean, I think it's absolutely worth doing in its own right, and I think we we're very uncertain about whether it has much effect or any effect on the, in the near term politically. Having said that. I think people are being a little too quick to say, oh, well, of course it can have no effect. Uh, look, Sarah's done all these focus groups, but let's see what happens in the neck in the focus groups three or four weeks from now. And again, we don't need 50 million Americans to change their mind about the relative importance of inflation on January 6th or how seriously they rate January 6th and the Republican Party being anti-democracy as an issue. What would make a difference is if 5 or 10% change their minds right, right. or 3%. I mean, if right now, if you talk to sophisticated, I keep telling people, look, it's a 2.2% difference on the generic ballot. It's not so obvious to me it's going to be a blowout election. Oh, no, you don't understand. Democrats or uh, Republicans are all worked up. They've got 72% enthusiasm. Democrats only have 60%. It's always a traditionally bad indicator. It's only what's going to happen. I mean, the enthusiasm question is a bad question. But leaving that aside, what if that 60% goes up to 70% among Democrats? That's only a changes the margin. It's 10% of 35, 45% of the voters, but it can make a heck of a lot of difference in states and districts. And what if a few swing voters decide, geez, I don't know, you know, we can't really put this party back in power. I'm going to just err on the side of the Democrats, even though I'm unhappy about a lot of things. It doesn't take, so I think the kind of complacent, oh my God, this is just never going to make a difference. It's only, it needs to be a difference at the margin. And I'm not so sure it couldn't be. Well, can, can I just respond yeah, sure, to, to because Bill is, is right, although I would say I would characterize it a little differently, which is part of what's happening right now in terms of the election. To me, it's not about the generic ballot. It's not about just like sort of the a broad shift. What I think it does is it reminds people of something that happened now 18 months ago in a visceral way where you have a bunch of people currently on the ballot in 2022 who were there that day. Right. So Doug Mastriano, who is 
the Republican governor candidate uh, in Pennsylvania who will appoint the secretary of the Commonwealth, who will probably appoint Kathy Barnett, who was also there on January 6th. What it does is in that, for, for those voters in Pennsylvania, it elevates in the minds about how bad that was that day and why that guy should not be governor. Carrie Lake in Arizona is very similar, a big January 6th. These people are political prisoners. And so shifting that narrative somewhat actually hurts a lot of the candidates who are running on the very same lie it is central to their campaigns, running on the same lie that drove the attack that day. And so helping to connect those dots and shift that narrative does does matter somewhat. I agree. And, and, and Tim made a point that I don't want to gloss over that, you know, being televised on all of the networks. So let's say, and you guys correct me on the numbers, let's say that 10 million people watched last night. Now, that would be relatively low rated. Right. And yet that's a hell of a lot more people than watch Fox News on any given day. I mean, that is a much the what people forget is that these numbers are much, much larger than the cable numbers. We tend to focus on cable television, but that tends to be a rather you know small sliver. So I don't know what the ratings are going to be. Um, second, what you mentioned, the connecting the dots. I thought that that was that was the really strong point of uh, of the hearings last night. And Liz Cheney obviously did, you know, did a masterful job of, of connecting all of, of those dots. And, and, and to the point about the hearings, I thought that, for example, Jamie Raskin did a very good job in the second Trump Im- impeachment, you know, making in, in his in his opening remarks and in, in, in set in setting the, the, the stage for it. And yet you really do see that after more than a year of actual investigation, how much more you have. I mean, this sort of feels like this gets to be a do over. And it was so much more graphic, so much more vivid. One more point. You, we mentioned Baseball Crank, who is this master of bad takes over at National Review, Dan McLaughlin. And one of the ways he's spinning this is saying, let me just read his tweet. At the end of the day, either you want Donald Trump to be the main character in American politics or you want to marginalize him and promote a post-Trump politics. Those of us on the right who want the latter must crawl over the determined resistance of virtually every Democrat. So- <laughs> <laughs> you see what they say? You, you Democrats are making us think about Donald Trump. We want a post-Trump world. And the best way to do that is to what? What? Ignore this is to play. Talk you about convicted him. We couldn't didn't need last night. They just needed to be 10 more votes. Anyway, I, that, that was yeah. the thing that was the most enraging for me last night. Just watching all this and being like, we could have been done with us. I, I mean, we yeah. still would have needed to have a January 6th committee, but we could have been done with him. Like the ongoing part of this that Amanda has written about so vividly like uh, we could there were 43 people republicans many of them who knew better some of them who were retiring rob portman and and if only 10 of them had just convicted him for the for this obvious crime that is being laid out so meticulously by liz cheney one in their number then then we wouldn't have to deal with this we could we could move on but but you know baseball (laughs) crank has to figure out a way to make it about yeah. about the people who'd want to still talk about yeah, yeah. this very it's, dangerous person that that is that is leading one of our major political parties. It's not the Republicans' fault we're beholden to Trump. You're making us do this. I literally have this in my drafts folder. I like I I, I but drafts. I tell myself I tell myself I you should just see my drafts folder okay. because all I'm like do not respond to baseball crank but I have just all these responses in my drafts but this one is Go, sure sure no. Sure, it was Democrats who voted to elect Trump. Democrats who absolved him from instigating the attack on the Capitol. It's all Democrats at your publication who justified that Trump. Bastard. It's the Democrats who run the RNC and put Trump at the center of everything. And then I ran out of characters. But the, the, <laughs> this is, 
it is so preposterous I, that I cannot. And, and these these people are all like it's like you Democrats and you never Trumpers. You want to keep Trump as though I don't listen to voters every single week. Tell me about how important Trump is to them and how he's still at the center of their political universe. Uh, and even the ones who don't still like him just fine, didn't think that this was disqualifying. He is not crawling over Democrats. He is crawling over Republican voters who still want this guy in our politics. Yeah, that's really true. Can I just two two quick points? I, I bet there'll be more than 10 million, who knows, but 10 million yeah, viewers last night with the roadblock across the networks and PBS and two of the three K big cables. So We'll see. I mean, and again, what's what do we always hear? Well, the people who watch cable or on Twitter, they're just intensely involved in politics. They right. 95% know what they think. But you know what? The people who are watching ABC and CBS and NBC, not as many as they used to be, obviously, somewhat older voters, but they're they're the ones you have to get to. Well, you know what? A fair number of them watched it last night. So yeah, yeah. I, I think people are being a little too quick again to say that, oh, you know, if you're just on Twitter, it's like, well, this is why is last night different from any other night? We're all watching, you know, we're all engaged in the same way. But I don't know if, if I do think it has a little more chance to penetrate. The other point I would make is, uh, and I guess I said this in my little uh, last night too, I mean, Nancy Pelosi deserves credit for putting Liz Cheney on the committee and for making her vice chair. Oh, that was not an automatic no. thing that was going to happen. It was co slightly controversial, kind of a surprise at the time. And then, of course, there was the McCarthy drama of the people he appointed. And she really did, I think, behind the scenes also help make sure that it wasn't inevitable that Liz Cheney would give the 25-minute presentation last night. It could have been Jamie Raskin again, and I respect Jamie Raskin, but it would not have had the same effect. And I think that was a Pelosi decision, not just a Benny Thompson or a committee getting together and being collegial decision. And I give Pelosi a lot of credit for her willingness to elevate Liz Cheney in this respect. I think it's been very important that it's been Cheney and not another one of the Democrats doing it, at least last night. No, I, I agree completely. And in, in fact, I we we talked about this during the second impeachment that, you know, I think maybe they recognized that uh, if they had made it a bipartisan, it might have been, you know, somewhat more effective. It wouldn't have changed the the outcome. You know, yeah, clearly Liz Cheney's a boss. I had this thought kept recurring to me, uh, you know, what a dull Kevin McCarthy is. And I don't know what goes on in his head, probably not a great deal. But his decision not to participate in this committee to just sulk instead meant that they were invisible last night. They had no they had, they have no eyes on the committee. They have no uh, role in the committee. Uh, if there was a single Trumpist on that committee, they could have, you know, pushed back, tried to rebut or, you know, just throw dust and smoke, derailed it. Instead, he just gave an open field. I mean, in terms of just classic political malpractice, I thought it was really on display that one of the dumbest political moves is to basically say, yeah, I'm going to give this platform to the other the other side with no input whatsoever. Real man of political genius, Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. Also, just imagine what it looked like. It was supposed to be the Capco Thompson committee, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you think of a bigger snooze than that? I, you know, even if it isn't about rebutting, uh, you know, just just the format of it, uh, you know, the, the way that the hearing went forth, what kind of witnesses. You're killing time. You're having the questions. I, you know, so I, absolutely, I, I completely agree with McCarthy's small practice. I, I just, I need to say about Liz Cheney. I know we've done this all, over and over, but she was just so damn good last night. She was and so I was good. texting them, and <laughs> and I just, I was thinking back to myself, and I, I feel like this is the one situation where I can put myself in the liberal bulwark audience's shoes, like of a liberal bulwark member who hated every, every, all the Republicans. I hated Liz Cheney. She was my, I think maybe my least favorite Republican in America when she sold out her sister twelve years ago. And I, I just, I can remember sitting in my office stewing. I donated to Mike Enzi. I was so mad at her. It's not like he was any better on gays. 
just it was just I just I, I just needed to do it to get it off my chest. And and I was like to think about the fact that not only would she be my favorite Republican in America, but a, a essentially essentially an American hero and and almost the only Republican left I respect. I, it's just. It's it's just amazing that that she's had the had the gumption to do this, and, and oh, I, 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 re- I really just didn't see it coming at all. Sarah, Amanda makes this point in the newsletter because you know I'm watching a lot of Republicans who voted for impeachment. They are not trying to highlight that at the no. moment, right? They are trying to get reelected. Many of them have have said sort of bizarre. Peter Meyer, who I like a lot, has said like a couple bizarre things to try to like inch back in the Trumpist direction. And Liz Cheney going into her reelection when she's down 25 points knows that being this high profile on this committee does not endear her to the voters of Wyoming. And you know what? She doesn't care. And I got to tell you, watching somebody do something selflessly for the country over their political career. And also, like, we've seen people do it. Like, we saw Jeff Flake do it, but we saw them do it in such an impotent way. I'm not, not, I don't want to. They did the right thing, and so I, mean, I don't want to criticize them, but I just – it just like it all fell flat, right? They were just sort of peeled right. off one by one. But, man, she just sits there and she She's goes and goes. Yeah. Yeah. That, like that was the thing that Liz Cheney did last night is Ooh. she put the Republicans in the room. They weren't part of it. You know, they weren't there. They, they weren't on the – but she she put them there and and called them out on their dishonor, and that was amazing. And just one more thing really quick on the primacy of this democracy issue and why it's so important and looking at Meyer and Cheney as a prime example. Both of them also voted against my new hobby horse, the bill to raise the gun age to 21 across the board for all guns. And I looked at Meyer and that just infuriated me because Meyer's like a moderate Republican. I like the notion that he would vote against that, you know, on principle is is preposterous to me. So he's yeah. obviously doing it because he's worried about his right flank. He's worried about his vote. So he's hiding from this committee. He's not doing interviews about how important it is. And he's voting against the gun thing. So I, I appreciate his his vote on, on impeachment. But just the contrast between that and then Liz Cheney, where in some ways, because Liz has been so stalwart on the defense of democracy, it I almost am like, I kind of like that you took that horrible gun vote, right? Because it, it's just one more piece of evidence that you are a crazy neocon who is just doing the right damn thing. So um, Amanda's piece, you know, talks about this and, you know, she writes, it doesn't matter if Cheney loses her election. She's exposing Trump's seven part conspiracy to overthrow the election. Without her, there'd be zero accountability. She is bending the arc of history towards justice. And and she points out, you know, people lose their congressional seats all the time over much less. Cheney, Cheney really almost single handedly, it feels, is will this congressional committee into action. And so it's worth it. It's 100 percent worth it. OK, so, guys. Um, I want to take a quick break here. When we come back, I, w- I want you to think of the highlight, the moment when you might have stood up and applauded last night. I mean, something that, that jumped out at you. And again, we are all jaded. We have all paid, you know, you know, we have read about this for a year and a half. And so what was it that really stood out for you last night? And also, we need to debate the question, in the absence of JVL, is Mike Pence a hero? Let's do that right after this. So do you feel like you're living in a media bubble, like it's harder than ever to find views that challenge your own? Well, that's where the lost debate steps in. It's a podcast and YouTube show for political eclectics who crave exposure to a diversity of beliefs and perspectives. The lost debate covers the latest news, ideas and trends without the bias and the manipulation from the mainstream 
or alternative media. It's hosted by Ravi Gupta, a former staffer for Obama and a school principal who fought Republicans at the ballot box, then fought alongside them for charter schools. Also, Corey Bradford, a progressive political organizer turned TikTok star who used to host a Fox News radio show, and Ricky Schlott, a Generation Z New York Post columnist and libertarian fighting to protect free speech. So they come from across the political aisle and from different generations, but they come together for debates that sound less like crossfire and more like discussions between real people. Join the conversation. Check out The Lost Debate today. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Thursdays. Find The Lost Debate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Okay, we are back with our mega panel, Bill Crystal, Sarah Longwell, Tim Miller, me, Charlie Sykes. All right, so Tim Miller, what was the high point of, or something that jumped out, it really stood out for you last night? Pick yeah. a moment. Um, can I just pick two? Sure, fine. Thank you. Well, you, know, you know, the rules are tough here. Yeah. I mean, Caroline Edwards' testimony, I'm sure I stole that from Sarah, um, yeah. but it was just obviously so moving. She did such a marvelous job. She was so authentic. And I, just the notion that she went back into the fight after she got knocked out, um, knowing that 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 she was overwhelmed by this mob, I, I was I was really almost brought to tears by her. And I think that we should build her a statue at the Capitol um, on the other side of the coin. Getting to watch sniveling Jared Kushner was really was really also pretty gratifying. Okay, so Bill Crystal, your moments. I agree with both of those, but I would just say generally, and I was struck the first time they, there was a clip from a deposition. I think it wasn't yeah. even a, you know, how gripping that is. You know, it just, people can say, well, that's just common. You know, they do that all the time on TV. That's not like fancy TV production, but it is a little different from a typical hearing. And and I, the fact that we're going to see a lot of these now over the next uh, six hearings, I think is, is makes it, it one's interested by Bill Barr sitting at a table with a bunch of, with the, with the, the, the investigators and sort of just seeing him say it as opposed to someone reading what he has said. And I, I think that makes the whole thing just more lively and interesting. Okay. So I actually had the same reaction when they went Bill Barr and then you said, holy crap, there's Ivanka. And then there's the smarmy Jared Kushner, which we could devote an entire podcast to. I thought that the fact that they they led with all of these Trump inner circle folks. Hey, it's not us. It's not NPR. It's not The New York Times. You know, it's not Bill Crystal and Charlie Sykes and Tim Miller and Sarah Longwell saying this. It is, you know, people, you know, from the heart of MAGA world. I also thought it was extraordinary their willingness to juxtapose Donald Trump's you know, comments about we love you. You are very special people. <laughs> Moments after watching these absolute barbarian thugs beating the shit out of cops, that tells me that they're going for it. They are going there. So, Sarah, what was your moment that jumped out at you? Yeah, you know, like they did that five-minute clip of the rioters actually breaching the Capitol. And I do spontaneously start crying when I see those because there's whenever we did the the previous hearing with the police officers, this happened before as well. Because you're watching the police with these mobs coming at them, and they're so scared, and you can hear them talking, and they you can see, and I, you look, and they have their guns in their holsters, and these people are coming at them, saying horrible things. You know, they're bashing through the windows, and and the fact that the cops did not open fire on I, them, and they took these beatings from them. I, I get, I always think how different that day would have been if more people had died 
like if it had turned into. And so like, I, I, there's this part of me that's looking at them being like, you have guns, you have guns. Don't let them overrun you. And then there's this other part of me going, God, thank God they didn't start shooting people. And I don't know what the right thing to do is whether it was right to be overrun. But the other thing that they did was they had, one of the things I always find confusing about the footage is you can't tell where people are at yeah. the Capitol. The Capitol's really big. Mm -hmm. And so where they were showing where they were breaching and then they were interspersing it with the real footage of where they were coming in. I also found that really compelling for the, for the first too. time. It was helping me visualize where they were coming in and how many different points of entry they were kind of breaking in. Um, and, and I'll just, that, that imagery of the being overrun mobs are so scary, right? Like mobs unleashed are terrifying, especially this one. And, and so, so that part stood out to me. Okay. So this is really interesting because what you just said about the, uh, the cops and the guns was almost, I mean, almost word for word, my wife's reaction who had the same emotional reaction you did exactly the same moment and then had the same conversation about what a bloodbath it would have been, you know, if they would have pulled out the guns and they would have shot. I mean, we had exactly that conversation. I also thought one of the highlights was was kind of surprising. It's when they had the video of the investigator who's walking through the conspiracy <laughs> and, and the way that they connected um, Donald Trump telling the Proud Boys, stand back and stand by and the mm. impact they had had and then seeing them and the little video clips of what was it, one of those guys, I can't remember which one, on uh, Alex Jones, you know, talking about how it's going to be uh, bloody. I thought one of the highlights was, uh, you know, Steve Bannon predicting, you know, how wild and uh, extraordinary it was, was going to be. Putting all of these things together, they weren't afraid to use things from social media, from videos and all of this. And you really do start to get the, the ugly, dark side of this conspiracy. And one of the things that they kept coming through my mind is how can anyone watch or listen to any of this and think this was just a peaceful, uh, peaceful protest or these were just tourists or that uh, they actually used Donald Trump's quote about you could feel the love in the air. Like, you know, I mean, how delusional do you have to be? So no wonder baseball crank and Rich Lowry are going, hey, nothing to see here. No, just don't pay any attention. Because if you do pay attention, it is impossible to say that, you know, this is in any way remotely acceptable or it's not a really big fucking deal. Don't you think, Charlie, that in Republic, maybe we we're talking about earlier about the effect of this. I think one effect could be also in Republican donor world and Republican conservative elite world, whatever they say publicly, to be a little more forward leaning after this November in thinking about, but maybe even doing a little bit. I know that's a, that's a stretch to not have Trump as the Republican nominee in 24. And they've got to look at that and think, we, this guy cannot be the actual nominee of the party. We can all not criticize him. We could all suck up to him. We could all be Dave McCormick-like and pretend he's a fine fellow and there's a slight aberration on January 6th. But I wonder, to the if you're Ron DeSantis watching last night, you might be more inclined to actually run against Trump in 2024 instead mm. of deferring, I think. Who knows? But and, and God knows you shouldn't bet too much on the courage or even the clarity of thought of Republican donors and conservative elites and members of Congress and so forth, the state chairs. But I, I, I got to think there's a little bit more hesitation in that world about it's one thing not to take them on. It's one thing to be like Liz Cheney and actually tell the truth. It's another thing to actually think about it, September 2024 and having to make the case that this guy that this guy should be president again. I, I think know, that's, I that's a, that bridge is a little longer than it was maybe a few weeks ago. I think so too. On the one hand, I agree with that. I agree with that instinct. That's a natural human instinct. On the other hand, I'm going to take one of your pet issues, Bill, to offer the counterpoint, <laughs> which is 
if, if this was proof that the quote unquote responsible types, you know, might start to act differently, uh, wouldn't we see have seen some of that at News Corp last night? Yeah. <laughs> Our old friend Paul Ryan on the board of News Corp. Paul Ryan, I loved that he was lecturing the the lack of courage among the Congress people no. that didn't uh, didn't vote oh. to convict. I, I, was, I agreed. That was a good point. Uh, it, it was you know uh, uh, deeply unself aware, but a good point. Um, not only I don't know if, if people missed this. I think it's worth just really calling out. Not only did Fox not air the hearing last night, but they Tucker. Got, no got rid of commercials. <laughs> so so Tucker went a full 60 minutes last night without commercials you know, to avoid people flipping over uh, during the commercial break. I mean, that is astounding that, that, that they went. Uh, maybe there was some FCC reason, um, you know, because the other networks weren't doing commercials. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. But, you know, for that to happen and then not to explain it, you know, not to even do the token, okay, we're going to cut in with Brett Baer for 10 minutes, you know, or whatever. Deeply depressing. Well, very much on brand for them. Okay, so let's have this debate about Mike Pence, because he clearly is central to this narrative. Uh, that was another one of my takeaways, is how pivotal Mike Pence's role was in all of this. The the uber ultra Trumpist loyalist uh, who spent four years being a sycophant stood up to uh, Donald Trump, didn't go along despite the real pressure. And by the way, that was well done, where they juxtaposed the attacks by Trump on Pence and then his tweet and then the people saying, hang Mike Pence. That I thought was very, very well done. Our colleague Jonathan Lass wrote a piece for The Atlantic saying that that Mike Pence is a hero. We ought to regard, the Democrats ought to treat him like a hero. So let's discuss this in JVL's absence. Sarah Longwell, Mike Pence, hero or not? By the way, I'm just going to say that in JVL's absence, I'm going to take the JVL position on this, just so you know. So hmm. his position will be represented. But Sarah, what do you think? I think that hero is a term we should reserve for, as Tim mentioned, like the cops who were there at the Capitol who, after getting knocked unconscious, went back, joined the line again, and then started treating people who'd been sprayed with bear spray. That's the definition of a hero. Mm -hmm. What Mike Pence did was his sworn duty. <laughs> he met his obligation. And anybody who knows JVL knows that JVL doesn't really think Mike Pence is a hero. <laughs> His tongue is somewhere in his cheek as he wrote that, because part of what he's trying to, to demonstrate is how much Republican voters think that Mike Pence is a traitor. This is something I hear in focus groups all the time, the idea that, that Mike Pence didn't stand with Donald Trump. And, you know, I think central to the case that this committee is going to make is what did Donald Trump do for those 187 minutes? And as people shouted, you know, hang Mike Pence, something he is reported to have said is, you know, maybe they should hang Mike Pence. Maybe they're right about Mike Pence. And so I, I think that JVL's point is more that one should elevate him in service to uh, because it's so crazy. Like Mike Pence, they were chanting it. And yet Mike Pence, he has given like one speech where he has said that what happened that day was wrong, that Donald Trump was wrong. But he's not doing what Liz Cheney is doing. And that's the thing about Liz Cheney. She sets a bar by which you can judge yeah. everybody else. Liz Cheney's a hero. Mike Pence met his constitutional obligation that day as he ought to have. It is good that he did. He probably did preserve a very important piece of the republic by doing it. But hero is, a, is too strong a term. Okay, we, we've heard the phrase defining deviancy down. Maybe we are defining heroism down, but these are the times we live in. So where do you come down on this issue, uh, Bill? 
I think JVL was yes making more the point that Democrats should say Mike Pence, you know, <laughs> or in fact, doesn't he actually suggest that uh, Speaker Pelosi should just put a resolution on the floor of the House praising Mike Pence just for his actions that day? They don't have to get into anything else he did for four <laughs> years. A it yeah, would be a fun. I mean, it would be a fun resolution. I guess I'll, I don't know how many Democratic votes honestly they would even get for that, but just, she'd have to whip it pretty hard. But it would be kind of a nice way of. But look, I think the politics behind this remain important. I was talking to a Democrat this morning who said. You've got, to, there are some Republican voters who will be a little bit like, geez, Mike Pence and Bill Barr and yeah. General Milley mm-hmm. and uh, his own campaign people telling him it was lost and Republicans at Fox News hosts calling to tell him to call off the mob on January 6th. All of that could add up. So it's not my cup of tea, so to speak. I'm with Liz Cheney, not with Mike Pence and Bill Barr. But I think there is some political utility, honestly, to emphasizing what they said in real time to Donald Trump. To Donald Trump knew he lost. Donald Trump knew it was that he was that he was subverting the law. Donald Trump knew that he was inciting the mob. All those things were he knew them. His own colleagues told him that he saw it in real time, and he did it. Tim, well. We all have clunkers in life, Charlie, and you know JVL is just churning out a great <laughs> newsletter every day. Almost, oh, almost all comes. A's, oh, a few no, B's no, in there. No, no. This one was a gutter ball for me. Um, I received a, even a text from a non-political friend uh, asking, I "Was a little concerned about <laughs> about my colleague?" I don't think that person got the subtext. So I'll just, you know, we'll just let that be for JVL. Um, I, I will say this. And I, this this might be something that I'm going to work on over the weekend. Um, so it's a, a fully developed thought. But um, I think that Mike Pence does have a chance to actually be a hero if he'd finished the job. And and I'm I'm pretty disappointed. Disappointed is maybe the wrong word. But um, I, I the fact that he's not testifying in front of this committee leaves me very little sympathy for Mike Pence in particular. And like, if he finished the job, if he would, you know, it's, I feel like we're at these movies, right? You know, it's a, it's a cliche in movies where the, you know, the good guy is, they're going down into the fire and, and it's like, you got to drop him into the fire. You know, you, 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 you can't go. give him an opportunity to get back out again. If you want to be the hero, you know, you have to, you have to finish the job and, and it doesn't seem like Mike Pence wants to finish the job. All right. That that is a good point. And if, if in fact he ends up not cooperating with this committee, then, you know, then he's undermined himself. And he, and he has done that. I mean, he has backed off from some of the things that he said, you know, one of the great moments, defining moments of his life, rather than doubling down on it, sometimes he he wants to, to downplay it, which I think is unfortunate. On the other hand, I think of incidents of, you know, when I was growing up, there was actually a TV version of John F. Kennedy's Profiles and Courage. And I remember watching all of that. And I'm thinking, you know, if if you were writing a Profiles in Courage, and I, I know how this grates on people. I mean, obviously, Liz Cheney would be at the top of any list. But, but what Mike Pence did by resisting that pressure is so extraordinary, especially when you think of all the other Republicans that have caved in. All of the other Republicans who looked the other way, who kept silent, who who went along with all of it. And how history would have been completely different if Mike Pence would have done basically what Mike Pence did for the last four years, which was to do whatever Donald Trump you know, asked him to do. And so the fact that that he did put, um, you know, his his sworn duty ahead of, of, of politics may seem like a bare minimum, but it's not a bare minimum in 2021, 2022 anymore. 
at the moment, when you think of the role of people that, that you may not like, like Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger or, you know, Doug Ducey in Arizona and, and Mike Pence, I mean, the history would have been a lot different if they would have just done what 90 percent of other Republicans are doing. So I guess I guess I'm, I'm willing to come down on the side of, that Mike Pence certainly comes off looking a lot better after last night. I don't know whether I'd call him a hero, but I'm I'm willing to go along with it. Hey, by the way, Tim. Can I just yeah. tell you something? Please. Okay. So just how the world, you know, works here. I am actually looking at Twitter right now and I'm looking at tweets that are You're podcasting the, the, and tweeting at the same time? You're multitasking? No, I'm reading. I'm not actually tweeting. <laughs> I, I can't actually do that, although I have. I'm looking at under notifications. Yeah. I wish I could give you a screenshot of it. Tim Miller and Mia Farrow retweeted a tweet you were mentioned in. Oh, which is Amanda Carpenter's. So I have the picture of Tim Miller and Mia. I was, Mia. I was hoping for like Timmy Chamelet or, you know, like, you know, Harry Styles, but no, Mia Farrow's fine, I guess. Okay. Just, just so you know, there is this moment where, you know, the planets have aligned. All right. So Tim, since we're talking about this, you had a piece for the Bulwark uh, yesterday afternoon about the, the gun issue, which we have gone uh, over and over and over again. And there's been all kinds of wish casting about, well, this time is going to be different because we're going to have a compromise. And yet we're finding out that uh, when it actually comes down to it, even the most benign pieces of legislation, like, for example, raising the minimum age for purchasing assault rifles to 21, you had only a handful of Republicans in the House. And you wrote about Senator John Cornyn, who for the last week has kind of been the quote unquote reasonable Republican, and he's killing this proposal. So just give yeah. me your thoughts about this and, and, and where we're at on an issue that you want to talk about enraging. I am constantly enraged about this issue, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I wrote about this yesterday. I just felt like we needed to get it up there on the record because he went on the way to leak to the Daily Caller that you know, to sort of signal to the base, don't worry, don't worry, we're not going to be taking any guns away, and 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 explicitly said that the 21 age limit increase was off the table. And, at, you know, in a day of the January 6th hearings, I thought this is going to get lost. And I, I it's, you know, I, Chris Murphy, God love him, is is doing anything, and he's bending over backwards. I, you know, I, I think that they'd probably do the d stupid door control if that's what it took, right, just to get anything that might help actually impact uh, these mass shootings and and the Republicans it's just Lucy with the football all over again so I you know I think that maybe they'll do the red flag law incentives and some money for school security which is literally the bare minimum that you could do it's like the Mike Pence of gun reform and so it's like okay well that's fine I guess I I don't I, I'm not gonna give them a heroism award but I'll give them you know a check mark on their report card like Mike Pence gets for doing his job but the fact that they can't do this is obviously just an unbelievable abdication of their duty. But I do think it is an opportunity for Democrats, and it's a thing to campaign on. And that was really the point of the article, is that 21 cannot just get lumped in with all the other various gun issues because it's visceral. It's something you can run ads on. It's something that makes the Republicans look stupid. It's very hard to defend, right? Like, why can my kid get an assault rifle, but not a white claw. And it's very hard to defend on a debate stage if you're a, if you're a deft Democratic debater and there's going to be some stupid Republicans on the debate stage this, this fall. So I, I, just, I just don't want the Democratic strategists to just let this one pass by. And that's the point of writing it. Just one quick thing. I, you're multitasking. I'm also multitasking while potting. I got a text from your Bulwark guest, uh, Ryan Bussey. 
mm. on this. And he had, had just read the article and said that there's one thing, a behind the scenes thing about why it got pulled is that the, the NRA and, and other gun rights groups do not want any legislation that will bifurcate certain types of rifles from other types of rifles, right? And so this notion that you can't move everything to 21 because, you know, you, you don't want to ban a kid for an 18-year-old in what Arkansas from getting, you know, one of those old falutin rifles that only have one bullet in them to kill the varmint. Um, uh, so since you don't want to make that 21, they don't want anything that separates out assault rifles because that then is kind of giving into this talking point that there is actually a difference in the type of rifle. And that is, according to Bussy, what is behind why why Cornyn killed that. So, Sarah, I, I was really struck by something that was in one of your focus groups that you tweeted out that you were talking to a group of conservatives. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. I'm doing this from memory of Republican voters from Florida. And none of them seem to have a, a problem with raising the age to 21. So this is not a wedge issue. No, I think that this was 2020 Trump voters in Florida. Uh, and yeah. we asked about guns. This was a week or so ago. So after, uh, Uvalde, and it was interesting because they did talk about some of the standard things that you hear Republicans talk about. They talked about mental health. Uh, they talked about hardening security in schools, but they also were just completely firm that the age should be 21. Many of them thought it should be 25. Uh, and they thought that there should be, it should be harder to get a gun. And and some of them were gun owners themselves. And so I just think that there is a very common sense part of people. And this is where Tim's right about, you know, you know, some of these show votes that the Democrats do saying, well, we want to get the Republicans on the record. They're not good enough to run on. Uh, but this issue is good enough to run on. And Democrats should not fail to prosecute this case as part of the broader case with abortion and with January 6th, with all of it about how extreme Republicans are. No, I agree. In, in fact, my experience has been among conservative gun owners who tend to vote Republican that when it comes to this issue of raising the age, people don't have a, a problem with it. I mean, this is one where there is kind of a reality check that, that the NRA is not actually speaking for tens of millions of voters. So, uh, Bill, you can comment on this if you like, but I but I wanted to ask you a question. Um, sure. I, so right before we did this podcast, I had an interview, a Sirius XM show from Canada where they're constantly going, what is going on with you Americans? Uh, just like, okay, I don't have all the answers for you. But she asked me, so today, how are you feeling about the state of American democracy? What are you? I, and my answer was, I sort of hedged it. I said, I'm, 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 I'm nervous still. Um, I'm, I'm really struck by how vulnerable it is. But your, your take, because you... I, 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 I sense in, in your contribution today that you, you have at least a glimmer of more optimism. I mean, possibly, possibly. Yeah. And in, in this sense, look, I think on the whole, it's a bad news story. That is to say, yeah. if you had told us all on January 7th, 2021, that this is where we'd be in terms of the Republican party oh and the God, conservative yeah. movement, <laughs> it's worse than we would have thought. There was a yes. moment where we could have perhaps in a way, put a parenthesis around the Trump years and begun to recover from it. And we would still have had huge issues with the way the Republican Party had behaved over those years and so forth. But but so that didn't happen. So that's that that's bad news. And I think that is the biggest piece of news, unfortunately. On the other hand, there's been a bit of a counter trend, I think one could say, over the last uh, 
maybe over recent weeks and months, uh, and maybe the hearing was, will, will accelerate that, which is if you look at the actual, and this is sort of Sarah's point, I think if you look at state by state, I think the chances of having governors and secretaries of state who will stand for democracy in 2024 is probably greater than we might have thought two or three months ago in the depths of despair. Uh, the chances of Democrats, in my opinion, holding the Senate actually are, is, are greater than I would have thought three, four months ago, I think maybe a little better than 50-50 at this point because of some of the character of these Republican candidates. So, uh, you know, I think that in that respect, yes, I'm a little more optimistic, a little more sense that Trump, I was talking with one uh, Republican who's in the field doing polling and involved in a couple of campaigns, and Trump seems a little weaker than he was, and God knows that's not a solution to everything because there's a post-Trump authoritarianism that in some ways could be even more scary, scarier than Trump, but I think in the short, medium term, it weakens the authoritarians if there are fissures and divisions there. So, yes, I think some some uh, green shoots, perhaps in 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 the uh, otherwise the slough of dis- despair. Is that how you pronounce that? I don't know. Whatever. Yes, the slough of despond. Slough. What is it? A slough? Slough? I never slough. knew what it is. Yeah. No, okay. my mother. My mother says that. Oh, <laughs> no, it was your Kenyan education. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> isn't your mother British though? Are we sure that isn't? Yeah, maybe that's kind British of like pronunciation. Yeah. Yeah. If you guys want to impugn my mother, fine. No, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Maybe <laughs> yeah, that's not leave, the American leave, pronunciation. That's all. Leave right. mothers out. See, you know, part of the my my problem is is that I really want to you know have that same you know look for the, the green shoots, and I and I do occasionally find the green shoots. And then you wake up on a morning and you go, you know, the country feels like it's having a nervous breakdown um, when you see the kinds of the, the prospects of violence. And this, again, you know, kept coming back. You know, you saw how violent January 6th was. The fact that you have a guy who is, you know, traveling across the country to murder a Supreme Court justice. Right. We had a judge in Wisconsin who was killed. You know, I, I do think that we have perhaps been lucky that we haven't had more overt violence like this. But you know, it's like, how many red flags do we need? We have this incredibly angry country bristling with guns. You know, can we be shocked if if things really begin to fall apart? And I don't want to be that negative, but I guess my anxiety is, is that how will Americans respond to all of this? Because it's being laid out for them. Are we going to go through that feeling of January 7th? Because you mentioned, you know, that there was a moment we could have moved on from this. I mean, the pivotal moment was January 7th when everybody said, you know, Donald Trump is an absolute disgrace. People were quitting in the White House. They were quitting his cabinet. Republicans were bailing all over the place. And Sarah, as my recollection is, that lasted about five minutes. You know, as Tim mentioned before, Republicans had the perfect opportunity to put Trump behind them. They just had to vote on the impeachment and they chose not to. And so we've seen this again and again and again. And so between the rise of violence and the you know, unwillingness to face the facts and the fact that you've had opportunities to move past it and you haven't done it in the past. So where do you come down on this? How do you feel about American democracy this morning? Yeah, well, look, I'm always going to be long on America and American democracy, but I am very short on the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And um, and I do think that okay. there really is only one solution which is you have to defeat every last one of these guys. And and I think the main problem in our politics, the thing that I worry about is that we have one party that is completely insane, lost its mind, has no shame. And then we have another party that is insufficiently popular to defeat that other party. And I don't like the blaming Democrats for what Republicans do, but I will blame Democrats 
for what Democrats don't do, which is seize this moment and try to become the big, broad, pro-democracy coalition that can defeat the Republican Party. But I'll say when I think about green shoots, we can we can end where we started, which is the orderly, sober way that hearing went last night. As Bill pointed out, that is what democracy yeah. looks like. It is a bipartisan committee. Yeah. Um, it is a thing that gives me hope watching them do it. It was not a circus. It was not a partisan witch hunt. Uh, and I think it was effective at reminding people of what good governance in the United States looks like. And I'm glad we're going to have five more of these. Can we end on a positive note? Because we rarely are able to do that. So um, <laughs> my I, next I, comment was I, not going to be positive. So let's just end. Let's I just knew end. that. See, I'm thinking now Tim's going to come and he's going <laughs> to rain on us. So and, and by the way, just a quick programming note. Uh, Tim will be hosting the podcast on Monday and he's got a very interesting guest. So, Tim, just give us a, a, a short thumbnail of Monday's podcast. Uh, my old friend, uh, Jamie Kerchick, has been working on a book for almost a decade. It's called The Secret City. It's a history of mm -hmm. gays in Washington. And it is phenomenal. I, I'm not one for fake praise, as you all know. It mm -hmm. is. It goes from basically it's like a Forrest Gump look at the gay person that was in the picture mm -hmm. at every major historical event from FDR all the way up to Clinton. Mm -hmm. uh, it is it is interesting, riveting. You'll learn new things about history. You'll become uh, re-depressed about all the homophobia and bigotry of our leaders over the past few decades, but they're also heroes that you don't know about. So it's an interesting interview. We do a little bit of politics too, and uh, I think everybody will enjoy it. A little break from the day-to-day -day nonsense. No, well, I could use a break, and I'm very grateful for you giving me uh, Monday off. So uh, make sure you tune in for Tim Miller hosting Monday's podcast. And once again, thank you, Bill Crystal. Thank you, Sarah Longwell. Thank you, Tim Miller, for joining me on today's podcast. Hey, gang, I just wanted to drop in to say thank you for joining me here each weekday. And also, I want to give a shout out to our Bulwark Plus members who helped to underwrite this show and keep everything we do at the Bulwark sustainable. You might think that a Bulwark Plus membership is all about our newsletters like my daily morning shots, but really, Bulwark Plus membership is about a lot more than that. We're building a community of independent-minded, concerned patriots who value democracy and the truth. We make most of what we do free and accessible by everybody because you can't help save democracy from behind a paywall, but we do have some great member-only benefits that I'd like to share with you because in addition to our newsletters, members have commenting privileges and also have access to ad-free versions of this show and all of the podcasts in the Bulwark Network, like Sarah Longwell's Focus Group Podcast and Mona Charon's show, Beg to Differ. And there's the Thursday Night Bulwark, a live video broadcast that we host for members each week on Zoom. You can give Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to thebulwark.com slash charlie to claim your free trial today. That's thebulwark.com slash charlie. Thanks. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.